So I don't even have a, a pop star to correlate this to. What are we What are we listening to, Betty? I can't even make that joke <laughs> right now. So uh, this is actually a collaboration work between uh, a Canadian-born uh, guitarist by the name of Michael Brooks and a very famous Pakistani singer, one of my favorite singers, uh, who's done a lot of collaborations with Eddie Vedder, uh, Jeff Buckley, and this guy we're really good friends. This is Nusrat Fat Ali Khan. Uh, he is a legend in not just Pakistan, but in India. He's like a great uniter. That's a big deal. Those two countries don't uh, don't really get along. Yeah, but people in India, people in Pakistan can agree on one thing, and that's Nusrat Fat Ali Khan. Um, super spiritual singer, great music. And what I love about his music is that he really does collaborate with a lot of old classic uh, Pakistani singers and a new wave of, of musicians, or did he passed away actually in 97, so it was quite a while ago. But one of my favorite singers of all time, uh, I think his music is absolutely beautiful. I chose this song in particular from um, his album called Must Must because it's got this really awesome jam to it. Um, it is a collaboration of Old World, New World, and we are doing not a throwdown at all, um, but we are talking about the differences between the Old World and the New World, specifically Burgundy and Oregon. We had, as some of you all, I think probably 17 people at this point, listen to uh, our conversation with Jean-Charles Boisset, uh, from the uh, Boisset family, Boisset collection. And, you know, we spoke to him about his connection with the new world. And I think it'd be really cool to try wines kind of side by side. Absolutely. So this is Bottom of the Bottle. He is Manny Gonzalez, the expert. I am Adam Cataldo, the pseudo wine professional. And we're, th this is a podcast of growth is what this is. It's personal growth right now. To, to give you how much growth, I am drinking a New World Pinot Noir and not Burgundy. We're trying really hard here to break out of the shell. Well, yeah. some of us are. I'm not trying very hard <laughs> because I have not just one, but two Burgundies with me. I have a 2014 uh, Domaine de Pavillon from Alec, um, Albert Bichot, Corton, Claude Marchand, Grand Cru. And I have from the Boisset family, Domaine de la Bergeret, which is their estate in uh, the village of Vougeot. But this is their wine from Pomard. This is the 2018 Le Petit Moison single vineyard Pinot Noir. So my Pinot is much easier to pronounce. I have Alexana uh, Willamette Valley, the Tawar series Pinot. Uh, Alexana is the Oregon property of of Ravana, Dr. Ravana's wines, when he branched out in, into the Pacific Northwest. And the Terroir series is the non-estate series. He's sourcing fruit from different places in the Willamette to just make a different expression of, of wine from, from that place, as, a, as opposed to the site-specific uh, ones from his estate vineyards that he, he also makes. So um, same care and quality in, in the winemaking, just sourcing different fruit. So uh, really 
really, really pretty. And I think what's cool about this is we were talking about this pre-show. The Willamette has kind of positioned itself as the American alternative to Burgundy. But when you dive into a lot of the specifics about, you know, the terroir, the, the place, the soils, all those things, they're not the same in, in most respects. It's a really interesting comparison to have. Yeah, I would agree. It's, you know, we've had several times, I think I mentioned this in one of our, our podcasts earlier, suppliers, which are, for, once again, those of you that are, you know, just kind of casual listeners and not in the, the industry, suppliers are people that are you know, work with the import companies or they're the supply chain within the United States. Oftentimes we'll say during meetings, oh, you know, we're talking about Oregon Pinot Noir, as, you know, as everyone knows, as if we should know this, um, Oregon and Burgundy are lined up parallel. The reality is, uh, um, I almost called you Alexana, <laughs> Adam. The reality is, I've had a little one. Uh, they are not correct. No, um, no, not at all. Actually, if you were taking the, the as my dog is chiming in because she agrees, the, if you're taking the actual latitude positioning, uh, well, the Willamette's going to be further south. They're more in line with the Northern Rome than they are with any aspect of I know. Right? <laughs> Say hello, puppers. Yes. <laughs> so, yes, very, very passionate about the Willamette Valley in the south of this dog. So. <laughs> uh, no, it's absolutely true. And I think, like, Burgundy, if you were looking at the, the latitude, is closer to Washington State than it is Oregon. It's in Washington State, uh, the Cote d'Or, and then Chablis in the northern part of Burgundy. That's way up into British Columbia and Canada. So they're not that that closely aligned at all. And climatically, I think there's a similarity, but with different influences. And you might ask, well, why don't we see Burgundian style wines in Washington State? Well, it goes it goes back to the rain shadow we always talk about. Uh, when we talked about the Vosges Mountains, we talked about the wines of Argentina and referenced in our Glorious Harmonious episode, uh, the Cascade Mountains in Washington State make pretty much the wine growing region almost like a desert. So you get warm days, a ton of sunshine nights, get really cold, which can produce a lot of fruit and a lot of acid. But that climate is not always best for Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. Burgundy, because it's because it stretches from north to south. If we're being technical, it's not a pure continental climate the entire way. If we talk Chablis all the way down to the Mackinac, uh, but it's continental with influences right, for all intents and purposes. I wouldn't call the Willamette continental at all. It's mild. It is certainly mild. We're not getting you know hundred degree heat days in any capacity. In fact. Uh, we're not even really getting a lot of 90 degree days, very rare, but we're also not getting um, super low temperatures either because you do have that uh, moderating effect from the Pacific Ocean in, in some capacity. The, those massive diurnal swings between day and night, you, you just don't get. And, you know, also too, and this is not a knock on the, the Willamette's soil types for, for terroir, but Burgundy has the... Oh, it's, it's not the most, because I actually think Napa technically has more, uh, but it has this 
crazy amount of you know soil types scattered throughout it just it, it's which is why it's so segmented and, and, and passed out it's just you don't get that everywhere well it has some cool soils don't get me wrong it has some variation but it, it's not the same so while it has uh, aligned itself with burgundy and, and there's a reason right if you want to if chardonnay and pinot noir is your thing if you're going to say that you're aligned with someone, it might as well be the premier region for growing those grapes in the world. Uh, but th there are differences, which, which is not, again, that's not a quality distinction. Uh, it's just that the, it's there is something different about the Willamette to Burgundy, but they're both special in their own way. No, absolutely. And, you know, it's so interesting when we, when we do talk about the variation within Within Burgundy, a lot of people will say, well, it's, it's homogenous because it's clay and limestone. Those are the base soils. But, you know, the way, specifically where my wines are coming from um, in an area called the Cote or the Golden Slopes, it's not one long contiguous hillside, but it's a series of hillsides that in the fall turn golden. Um, there are within these, the villages, so the village of Pomard, for example, the village of Jevry-Champertan, you have what's called a comb. And a comb is basically a break in the hillside that creates a valley where a river runs through or once ran through at one point. And from our conversation about wines of Argentina, we are talking about alluvial soils in Argentina. You get the same thing in Burgundy. So you will get uh, a little bit of granite, not a lot, but a little bit, you will get iron, you will get uh, a lot of river stones and pebbles. And Adam and I talked about in our Argentina episode, when we were at a winery um, in Argentina, they had all these holes in one of their vineyards, Piedras Infinitas, um, and the, the agronomists would jump in the hole and show us how different they were. Well, Bichot has the same thing in one of their properties in Nuit Saint-Georges. In one of these combs, a uh, higher elevation, and they have holes dug out throughout. So you can see the difference um, within each vineyard. And so your base soils may be uh, in the Cote de Nuit, in the northern part of Burgundy, maybe clay in the Cote de Bon, in the southern part, maybe limestone. You are getting a, little, a much more soil diversity, but in a subtle way. And, and to me, that falls in line with Burgundy in general, because Burgundy is a subtle wine region. The wines in Burgundy are very subtle, um, you know, and it's the whole point of terroir, the idea of terroir. This concept that this vineyard and this vineyard show differences with the same varietal, but the differences are subtle, uh, which is why winemakers will make the wines, you know, the same way when they are producing their wines. Again, we're, we're starting to conceptually we're starting to see some of that come more probably to Oregon than we are in in California in the the we talked about this either a couple of weeks ago with, with Carneros being uh distinct in California and being one of the few if not the only ABA that is actually created purely because of uh, a place it's not a um it's not an arbitrary geographic distinction, you know, denoting a place. It actually, it, it was picked for, for its, because it was special for, for what it did. Um, I think the Willamette is trying to do that. They're, they start, they're having a bunch of new subzones that they're putting out. And if you delve into those individual subzones, 
you know, the, the Dundee Hills, the Eola Amity Hills and so on. They're, they're trying to make those similar distinctions. Again, it's different from Burgundy, but following a similar model because uh, that, that's important to them. Place is important to them as well. If you're going to mimic Burgundy, you have to talk about place, right? You can't just talk about varietal. It's really important to stay on that, on that track. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's the defining point of Burgundy more so than anywhere else. Um, and for those of you that, that have never looked at a map of Burgundy, uh, not just a broad general map where you see Chablis and, and the Cote d'Or segmented between Nuit and, and Bone. But if you look at specifically, say, one of the wines that I'm drinking, the Pomard from Domingue de la Vigere, if you were to look at the actual map of this, uh, we would say village, but I mean of this, this AOC, or this little appellation, this little subregion, you would see numerous, numerous um, vineyards. Each vineyard in Burgundy has been isolated, segmented, named, typically named for something important. So for example, uh, Petit Nozon is basically just a, um, a shift within the word for walnut tree because there are walnut trees in this area. Um, Oddly enough, the wine's a little a little nutty, you know. But if you'll see a series of most vineyard maps, and Pomard will do this or throughout Burgundy, you'll see kind of like a light pink vineyards. Those are um, general village uh, vineyards, or what they would call ludis. And then something in dark would be the Premier Cruz, or the the uh, first growth. Literally, what it means, but that's the next step until you get to Grand Cru, which are the great great vineyards. Um, interesting fact, Pomard, historically, is one of the most famous villages in the region of Burgundy, has no Grand Cru. But there are two vineyards, and one of them not far from uh, Petit Lausanne, um, called Le Panon. It's two vineyards over, and there's a petition to get that vineyard and one more vineyard uh, called Région elevated to Grand Cru. And the people of Pomard really want this, but the people that own these vineyards don't want this. You'd think they would because it's Grand Cru. The problem is those wines are already priced like Grand Cru. They're already expensive wines. I mean, you're talking hundreds of dollars a bottle, but people buy it because of the name Pomard. Pomard in and of itself is, a, is almost a brand, like Champagne is a brand. Um, more so than I would say almost any village in Burgundy other than maybe like Chassani Montrachet or Gevrechambertan. It's, I always found it interesting when talking about the, the Cote d'Or, um, you know, Cote de Bone, Bone, as, when you think Bone, you think uh, skeleton, it's, it's white, right? So all the, and again, it's not, this isn't exact, but all a lot of the really great places for Chardonnay are in the Cote de Bone, white wine, white, you know, the bone, the connection. Cote de Nuit, Nuit, Night, the, the premier places for your reds are in the Cote de Nuit. Again, it's not, you have some, they flip-flop and whatnot, but uh, it, in general, it kind of splits that way. Pomade's in the Cote de Bone. Um, it, it just kind of, it always, you know, I always thought they kind of got gypped in that sense on the Grand Cru thing, because they were just like, and it, it was the same vineyard, it do, producing the exact same wine, just a little north, they'd have had it. It's like, no, that's the pot that does white wine, so we're gonna, um, 
you know, we're, we're not going to give it to you. We're just going to premiere crew only and, and call it a day. But um, that's a conspiracy theory. That's, there's no, that's not grounded in any fact whatsoever. <laughs> is that a QAnon thing that is horrible news? <laughs> no, it's, it's absolutely true. And, and you're right. Like, you know, wines from the Cotonoui, you know, there are a few exceptions of some really good Chardonnay. Um, Upper Bichon makes one, Inuit Saint-Georges. There's a famous Grand Cru uh, vineyard called Moussini which is mostly red, but they are allowed to use a little bit of Chardonnay. When we talked to Jean-Charles Boisset, we talked about um, the, uh, the monopole vineyard in the village of Vujo, right next to the Grand Cru, that is dedicated to white varietals. Um, what I really like about the Côte de Bonne and both the Grand Cru, I have Corton and Pomard are located in the Côte de Bonne, is that it actually, they remind me a little bit of some of the ones you might find, specifically actually the, the Alex, Alexander, because I always find there's this really nice kind of juicy red fruit thing to that wine. I haven't had it in a while, but that's my memory of it. And I find that the wines, the red wines of the Cote de Bone have that. Um, and you typically find some good value for higher end wines in the area. So for example, the Corton Grand Cru, Corton is this huge hillside that separates the Cote de Nuit and the Cote de Bone. Um, predominantly planted to red grapes, although they do have a very famous parcel called Corton Charlemagne on the northern part that was planted by, or for rather, Emperor Charlemagne. I don't think he went out there with, um, you know, tilling equipment to, to plant that. He had his minions do it, but that's planted to Chardonnay. Um, there is a small parcel planted to Pinot Noir, but it's not called Corton Charlemagne. It's a really large vineyard broken up into 30 different parcels. Um, and they're not inexpensive wines. You're gonna buy a, a Corton Grand Cru Red. You're still looking at a 150 to $200 a bottle. Um, don't ask me how I got mine, uh, I, won't, I won't say. But when you compare that to the Grand Cru wines of the Cotonoui, that is a good entry point if you wanna splurge a little bit because now with those wines, with the, the Richebourg, Echezo, Clobougeau, you're looking at three, four, five hundred dollars, depending on the producer, up to several thousand. Um, one of the most expensive producers, Domaine uh, Romanicante, La Romanicante, has some Corton, and those you'll see in that five hundred dollar range. Still a lot of money, but for that winery, that's actually kind of the the lower the lower end of anything that they make. Very bougie winery, you know, he's the entry levels in that three to 400, you know, it, it's, it, again, it's, it's what my dog drinks and she, you know, she's very upset that we're trashing, that I'm trashing I know, why am I not paying attention to you? I don't know. <laughs> just, you know, she's just not happy with today's content, I guess, is what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> she's but, like, you know, no, Louis St. George. That's right. Why no, Louis St. George? No, she's like Aisha's only. What are you doing? No, <laughs> uh, but it it really it, it's so it's so interesting. Uh, really, this is just what's gonna. This is just what it is today. I guess it's, we're gonna have to, some days are like that. That's fine. You know. Um, <laughs> come on, fluffer. Go go go. Go, go, go. There, Adam's, while Adam is chewing his 
uh, dog away. I'm going to play the cool most sounds of Burt Beckerat. I don't know. I was going to hum something. I don't really know. There you go. <laughs> uh, but like it's this is the other piece too when comparing you know Burgundy with anywhere. Um, Willamette has really been producing great wine. Fifty-ish years, maybe a little less than that. So they haven't had the opportunity to parcel out every area and you know drill down on this is best for you know for this and that and so on. They have some of that because technology is advanced enough that we can do some things really quickly now. But I mean, Burgundy had that opportunity, you know. 1,000 plus years ago to really drill down and go, okay, we're going to plant this here, plant that there. The thing they had too is, uh, yeah, people live there, but we didn't have infrastructure like we have now when they were doing that, you know, uh, the housing developments, just all those things that, you know, exist in the modern world weren't there. So if you were trolling around Burgundy in the year 900, and you were like, you know what? This would be a great spot to, to try planting Chardonnay. You could just plant a couple of rows of Chardonnay if you wanted and see how it would go for a few years. And it wouldn't really affect anyone outside of the, you know, is, is there cattle grazing there? Are we growing something else? But like, it was somewhat easy. If we've paved the road that was the best spot to plant Pinot Noir in the Willamette Valley, you're not ripping the road up to, to put it down. So th there's, a, there's other things that the modern, the modern wine world, like the Willamette, has to deal with and contend with that we don't even think of when we're talking about you know terroir and sense of place because all these things affect as well um, you know not not for nothing where yeah we have we have roads next to vineyards and, and so on but again in Burgundy throughout the years the all those things were kind of done around the viticultural area what we're doing now is we're kind of adapting where it's the other way the infrastructure is already in place in many of these places we're trying to find the vineyard and have it around the infrastructure that's already there um around an already kind of a, a affected you know terroir for for lack of a better term so it, in some ways they have a more difficult job in creating that sense of place and that distinction and it's it's cool that they are tackling it in that sense and the other part by attaching yourself to Burgundy, one, you want to, for marketing purposes, we said this before, if you're going to, you know, be known for Chardon Pinot, you might as well line yourself up with the people who do Chardon Pinot. But you're also setting yourself a really high standard. So if you don't put out a, a phenomenal, you know, product, a bottle of wine, while you're calling yourself America's Burgundy or, the, or comparable to Burgundy in America, you're not going to last very long. Because that's a you're you're setting the standard for yourself that you want to hold yourself to what they're doing in, in that historic region, and so it's again with with what they have to contend with and the the goal they're setting for themselves. It's really interesting to see what they're putting out and how they're approaching it and, and so on. Um, the is I'm drinking the Alexander Willamette, which isn't one of their estates. It's a blend of of several places, and it is more fruit forward. Uh, but I would expect that from a New World Pinot com compared to Burgundy. But the structure is nice. There are some tertiary flavors. It's really, really pretty. Um, 
it's Oregon because it's, it's never going to be Burgundy because it's not from there. But I can totally understand why they would make the parallel. And that's what they're, you know, their process is similar. That's, you know, what they're going for is, is that style wine because there's hints of it in, in this. It's really yeah. pretty. I've always liked that wine a lot. And those ones are great. And actually some of that red fruit, I think I was saying that some of that red fruit reminds me of, of the pomard. The pomard is unique because pomard's known for having this big rich structure. And part of that, you know, has to do with, with the soil types and a lot of the more famous vineyards, there's a lot of iron in the soil and it gives wines, the wines this real intense minerally backbone to it. But where this is located, it's more of these river stones, um, that alluvial soil coming from this comb, from this river that actually literally goes underneath the village of Pomard. But you get a little more gravel in the vineyard, which gives it some fruit. Um, and the way they produce it, it's so, this is actually a super unique winery. Um, every parcel that they own, they vinify separately. So this is, I think, two or three different parcels within the vineyard. Um, and they're open top fermented in oak, uh, but each parcel has an oak, has oak barrels for fermentation specific to that parcel. So they're not just using any, any barrel they have and they're all size specific. So the larger the parcel, the larger the barrel, the smaller the parcel, the smaller the barrel. So it's kind of feng shui in a way. Um, and then it goes through, uh, the younger vines are already stemmed, the older vines are whole cluster. Uh, they are um, not co-fermenting anything. The wines are aged separately. And then they spend about two months in stainless steel after the winemaking process is done, just to let the flavors kind of mingle together for a little before it goes into bottling. Um, but I want to jump back quickly with what you were saying about um, that in many ways the New World guys have it a little harder, which I, I, I agree in many ways, but there's also more of a freedom too, because if there's a plot of land over there and it's within the boundary of the Willamette and I want to till it and, and throw some, some vines on there, you, you know, I can do that. Well, I can't because I don't have money. But I mean, if you have money, you can do that. In yeah. Burgundy, it's, it's set in stone. And so this is one thing that John Charles has said when we had um, met with him when we was on our call the other week. Um, you know, he had said that they did the unthinkable. They created a new domain in Burgundy yes. when new domains haven't happened in quite a long time uh, with Domaine de la Vergere, you know which is kind of cool, um, but it's, you know, you can't stretch further out from the area. Yeah. At that point, you're like basic, I mean, you, you can be a little basic Bourgogne, um, you know, there's a few different little uh, Cote de Bourgogne or uh, Cote de Nuit, Cote de Bon, these kind of higher elevated areas that don't produce the sophisticated fruit that you get from really the heart of the Cote d'Or. And if you're gonna spend the money to make a winery, why do that? Why not go for the gusto? You know, so, but, it, but it's, but I also agree too that um, if you have the means and the resources in Burgundy and you have the connections to buy the fruit, you can do something quite magical. And in, in Oregon, it's a little more difficult to do that. Yeah. They all have, you know, the, I don't want to say pluses and minuses, pros and cons, but their own challenges, right? And in, into crafting world-class wine. Some cases it's just money. 
if you have the money, you can make a world-class wine. Um, you know, it's uh, in other situations, it's, it's, it's place and, and so on, but it, it's really, it is really interesting, you know, it, and how it works. Um, what's cool about Alexana too, if we're again, you know, drawing that comparison to Burgundy, they're doing so many things that, that, uh, I got to meet, this is, uh, you know, 10 years ago, Pierre Ravani, who at one point was the, uh, re he reviewed Burgundy for the wine advocate for Robert Parker. And I got to meet him and, and chat with him for a little bit. And he said, the beautiful thing about Burgundy is you're taking fruit, you're shoving it into a barrel and you're waiting. That's how you make wine in Burgundy. It was the, it, it was the, is, it was as hands-off a process as possible. And it's, you know, nothing funky. It's what they're doing. That's a slight exaggeration, obviously, as to what they're doing, but it, it got the point across. Alexan is very similar, actually, in what they do. So the vineyards they're getting the fruit from for this wine, and I think for almost all their estates, they're, they're dry farms, so they're not screwing with the, the fruit in, in the vineyard. Uh, everything is hand harvested and, and, and hand sorted. Uh, we're native yeast fermentation. We're not playing with the chemistry set, you know, during, before, after fermentation. Um, you know, the whether wine is gluten-free or vegan and all those things is that, and if that means anything beyond the buzzword, that's a whole separate discussion we can probably do a podcast on. But uh, when something is, has those denotions, uh, again, where we're not playing with any type of, you know, funky chemistry set for the wine. And like you were just saying, you know, fermenting everything separate because that sense of place is important. The one that I have right now is a blend of different vineyards. And that's what they did. They're, they're blending all, they're I mean, fermenting all these items separately, uh, but treating them in a similar way and then blending at the end to create a, a product. So it's a very Burgundian process that Alexan is incorporating in their wines in, in Oregon to, again, I mimic that, that feel and give yeah. that sense of place. So how was the wine drinking? Like taking all that into to account, you know, as you put wine in your mouth. As I, as I drink. Yeah. You had to ask me that as I was drinking, right? I, I told you that's waiter background. You always ask how the food is when people put food in their mm. mouth. Mm -hmm. uh, look, the, I'm with you. These wines are always really nice. The, they're always pretty. Um, the This is a 2018, uh, and I don't want to get into geeky vintage nonsense, but there's a little more weight on this than I would normally expect out of a Pinot. So the... I haven't checked the alcohol, but it feels a little weightier than the, than normal. Uh, but the the fruit is soft. I do get a little bit of you know tertiary flavor, you know um, forest floor type thing, but in a pleasant way, not in a, a musty way. And look, nice long finish, really well balanced. Uh, it's I mean it's it's a I'm probably going to drink the bottle lower while we're sitting here. It's not that, uh, it's not that difficult to go through. So, but it's got some structure where if I had food with me right now too, it would go really well. So. Yeah. I, I always you know, feel with that wine that it's such a, it can be a great aperitif style wine. Um, it's such a good, easy food wine. And like you said, it can go down pretty quickly, very different than the, the Corton that I'm having, um, which is a much richer style 
water, at least in terms of tannic structure in the acidity, it's actually kind of a cool monopole vineyard um, within this, this broader Grand Cru that's owned by Domaine de Pavillon, which is one of the estates owned by uh, Upper Bichot, sustainably farmed, organically farmed. And it's a, a clos called Clos de Marachade, which basically means a clos, which is a walled in part of the vineyard. Uh, Marachade is, comes from the word marsh because at the bottom of the hill, um, hundreds of years ago, several hundred years ago, there was marshland. As the waters receded, became prime, a prime, most burps, <laughs> it became uh, prime real estate for some beautiful Pinot Noir. Uh, and it's, you'll see two different cuvee names. One is the Corton, which is the Grand Cru. Um, so there's no need to put the village down that it's its own appellation. And then you'll see Alex Corton. Alex Corton is the village name. And we've mentioned this before. You see this with Chevy Chamartan. You see this with um, Von Romanet or Sassani Marche, Pouline Marche. If you have a Grand Cru in your village, you can append the name of that Grand Cru onto your wine, which is why people in Pomard want those vineyards to become Grand Crus so they can put the Grand Cru name on their wine. But the, Grand, but the people that produce those villages know that they sell more wine as Pomard. Um, I don't know if that makes that makes sense. So you will see Alex Corton, Premier Cru, Clos de Marchand, Monopole. So it's just the bottom part of that slope. Um, funny little side fact. I mentioned earlier the hilltop of Corton, Corton Charlemagne at the top of the hill planted with Chardonnay uh, is technically in another village called Pernard Vigiles. And there's a little bit of red plots as well for um, the Corton Grand Cru in this other village. The people of Pernard Vigiles, the historic name is Pernard, decided, well, we have a really great Premier Cru uh, vineyard called Virgiles that's southeast facing. It's actually a beautiful, beautiful wine. Maison Champagne makes it, it's great, uh, or makes one or several. So we're going to name it after Virgiles, which is a vineyard that no one's ever heard of before. Instead of calling it Pernard Corton, which would have increased bottle sales exponentially. But the wine is much more tannic. Um, it's a 14 vintage, which was a cooler year. There's not a ton of fruit to it. So it's definitely much more of an earthy style with a lot of beautiful acidity to it. So it's definitely a fresher style wine and really more akin to kind of richer, richer food where the pomard is softer uh, because they do a very gentle press with it and they want to make a wine that is a little more delicate and elegant in style, uh, which reminds me of my memory of the, the Alexana. Oh, absolutely. So I got a random question because I think this is something that we say all the time, but I don't, in, in the sales side, but if this, is actually, if this is accurate to you, and then I'll give my answer after I hear yours. So the, the piece when, you know, the sales guy goes, oh, hey, you know, well, if, you, if you have people who, who love, you know, who love Burgundy, try to get them into Oregon. Like, they'll really like Oregon because, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not the same thing, but if you like Burgundy, you'll like Oregon. How do you feel about that phrase? Is that, is, is that a valid statement? Is that just me being a skeezy salesperson when I say that to customers? And no, no, it, it, it makes sense, I think, in, in some ways. I think especially if we were talking about maybe wines from the Cote de Nuit, which are a little spicier, because I find that Oregon wines definitely have a little more of um, a pepper 
black pepper kind of thing to it. Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to phrase this in a polite way. No, no it, it actually, I, I think it does make sense in some ways, depending on the producer. Um, Alexan, especially when you get to their estate series, there's more richness. Uh, they're, they're a little denser aromatically. It's less fruits, more earth. Uh, Christum is another producer and resonance from, uh, well, from Jacques Ledier, who was a winemaker for Louis Jadot for 40 years. Um, you know, those wines to me have a sense of Burgundian or Burgundian, a sense of Burgundy to it. But they are their own, they are their own thing. So I think making the correlation so it makes sense to people is important. And they can be great crossover wines for someone that only drinks Burgundy um, or vice versa. Someone that only drinks New World wines. I only drink California. Burgundy is too high in acid for me. Go to Oregon, get into those wines for a little bit, and then pop a bottle of Burgundy. And it's a, I think it's a good gateway drug. Ooh, I like that. The Willamette is a gateway drug. <laughs> <laughs> It's, uh, it, it, is, it is interesting, especially when wines that want to convey a sense of place, which means they're unique, right? It means that they don't want to be like someone else next door or across the pond or wh whatever capacity we're talking about, to then say, well, if you know, if you like that, you should try this. Because that, that's, that's the whole point. They're not like anything else. That's why they go through all that painstaking process to narrow down to the, you know, the Grand Cru or... You know, on the non with I mean, the Clamats and the Ludis and all the other, you know, non-AOC designations that they have in Berkeley to say, I am different from my neighbor, even in my town or, or whatnot, to then go, okay, well, yeah, well, I mean, if you like that, you know, you should just try the Willamette Valley. <laughs> it, 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 is a, it is probably an overgeneralization, but I, I agree, it's the making correlations and comparisons is how we understand things better in, in, in a sense, especially if you've never tried it before. I'm going to explain to you what an, what an Oregon Pinot tastes like and you've never had one. I have to give a reference point, right? And so have you had a Burgundy? Okay, well, now we have a reference to talk about. So I, I, I do, while they're different in, in, in many ways, the you do have enough of that similarity where you can, it can be that reference point for someone. And you can maybe go one way or the other and say, oh, you know, if you really like Oregon, well then why do you like Oregon? Oh, I, li I like high acid. Okay, then maybe you're gonna like Burgundy. Oh, I like this really, I like this one because it's really fruit forward. Okay, then maybe you're gonna like a California Pinot better than you, than, than you would a Burgundy. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a flawed statement but as a reference point, if you go deeper into it and chat with someone, it can be really helpful. That's kind of how I view it. No, I, I would agree. I would agree 100%, you know. Um, just curious on the, on the Alexana, do you, do you know what kind of oak they're using, where they're getting their oak from? As you uh, it is, so it's, it's French. Um, so they're using, um, I believe it is somewhere between 20 and 25% new French oak for about 10 months in the, in the Pinot. So... So the only reason I, I just, it's kind of a, a lead-in question, question or a, um, a what's, what's the word for it? Um, Leading? A segue question. Oh, yeah. So the reason why I mentioned it, it's, I just, I really love them in the literature. I think there's such a cool winery. Um, their story is really cool. So they're all about history. And, you know, if 
going back to the conversation with Jean-Charles, talking about making vibrational wines, you know, wines that make your nipples get hard. You know. um, the, the story of Domino Vergeré, so first of all, it was their house they grew up in, um, in Vuchot. It's an honor of that, an homage to that house. But they really draw on the history of the region. So the people that planted um, the Grand Cru vineyard of Clovujo were the Cistercian monks, or like 1100 or something like that. Uh, they were using oak from a forest just to the east of Burgundy, east of the Saint River called the Situ Forest. Uh, it is a wider grain, like Allier is kind of the one you see, or Limousine you see a lot in France, which is a shorter grain uh, oak. This is wider grain, which adds, allows more oxygen to come into the wine, but this is what they use. And not only are the vineyards sustainably farmed, biodynamically farmed, and estate, because everything they bottle is estate, the forest is also estate and organically farm. And every time they cut a tree down, they have a deal with the, the organization that manages the forest, they replant a new tree into that forest. Um, so they're always replenishing, which is just super, super cool. Um, and then they let it dry for like three years. I was listening to this woman, Sylvie, who like runs the winery earlier today um, on a YouTube little chat thing she had. And where I can distinguish her because French people have very intense accents when they live in France, purposely so I think sometimes. I have a really good friend who is Colombian, um, super awesome woman by the name of Lise, who lived here in the United States for like 10 years, lived in Canada for five years, and purposely kept an accent that was hard to understand to maintain the, the integrity of her, of her home because she was stubborn like that. And I think the French people do the same thing, you know, uh, even if they go to an American school, they're still gonna keep that intense accent. But then they have uh, eight different cooperages create, assemble the barrels for them. So, I mean, it's just such, I, I just can't go on enough about what they do in the winery. Um, the wines are so easy to drink even their Clovujo, the Grand Cru, um, I, we had the chance together in the spring to taste the 2018 vintage of all these wines. Um, was still a pretty rich, impactful wine, but a great wine that you can drink now. 18 was a warm vintage, but you can also hold on to that for 10 years, 15, 20 years easily. You know, it's be gorgeous. So two things, one, I never want to hear anything about my accent ever again. I'm just trying to sustain, you know, my sense of where I grew up. Okay. So hey, words are hard. Does it, you know, it, 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 it's nice. When I say shadow, I'm dumb. <laughs> all right. So I don't want to hear it ever again. That's thing one. Uh, <laughs> th thing two, it almost completely changes the way you view an estate line, right? Um, when you're, when the, the, Oak barrels are a state too, like the entire process beyond, you know, like <laughs> you almost want to jokingly say, where are you getting your aluminum from? But that's where you're getting your oak from, right? Like to for your, for your stainless steel tanks, like, what are you doing? It, 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 it's a, it's such an interesting way to, to view it and approach it and keep that sense of place just conceptually. If I take oak from a different part of France, 
and age my wine in it? Am I changing the sense of place? It's just a really cool, unique way to, to look. I'm sure some people would say, no, that doesn't, no, like it doesn't do that. But it's again, it's just a one more kind of point of differentiation from what they're doing compared to, to other people. It's a, it's a cool story. Yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, I almost broke a nail. I don't know why that even bothers me at all, but I almost did. Um, yeah, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> the wine's really good. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of what the format today was like. Let's let's drink some really good wines and talk about them for 45 minutes. Yeah, it's something that we haven't done yet. So, yeah. I mean, we drink really good wines when we do this, yeah. but we talk about all this other stuff and, and less so about the actual actual wines themselves yeah i i do i mean this is this wine's awesome i mean like so alex out is no joke the 2018 uh, estate pinot was the 2018 right as i quote the wrong thing yeah yeah, yeah. Got a, just got a top 100 from wine spectator which you know look scores on everything i think we, we've talked about them before but it, again it's a reference point right and not it's, it is something to be proud of because they they these publications do review hundreds of thousands, you know, hundreds, thousands of wines from different places and to be picked when you're the size of Alexana and whatnot to, to have that distinction of making the top 100 for your wine is, it's cool. You, you've done a nice job. Um, you know, they know what they're doing. The, the, they have a California press, a Dr. Ravana, the founder, um, the short, really short version of his story. He's a, a world-renowned hot surgeon, essentially, who journeyed to Napa and wanted to be involved. Wait, in wait hold on, hold on. He's a hot surgeon? Yeah. <laughs> Did you just really say he's a hot surgeon? He's, yeah, he's a hot surgeon. <laughs> With their hot. Listen, have you seen Dr. Ravana? Smoke that. So... <laughs> Yeah, like he he so he found this vineyard. Like, screw it, I want to make Napa Valley wine, and he he did and, and did it you know really well. And it's this cool, good guy just trying to make some good wine with with what he's got. And he very passionate about what he does. You know, especially it's not for nothing when you put your name on a bottle of wine. It, it's it's a it's it is it's a representation of you. Like in this goes to Vougeret. You know, uh, Jean Charles was very adamant about that was what they called his grandparents' house. That was, you know, it's a big deal to then put that on a label because that means something special to you. It's part of your identity and who you are. So it's it's cool, one, to to see other people's visions and what they're bringing to the table and, and representing themselves, which is what the, those bottles are for. Uh, you know, for Dr. Ravana and for and for Jean Charles, but beyond that, it's so many wines that we deal with are empty labels. You know, it's they're good. Like, don't get me wrong, I'll, I'll drink them. Like, they're they're fun to drink. They're they they do the job. Uh, they they taste great. All that stuff. But there's there's nothing. There's no story to tell. There's nothing behind it. It it just it's a someone made a wine and put it in a bottle and put a funky label on it and we, we, we drink it. It's, it's nice. Um, and those things have a place, but it is nice when you can make that connection because 
you know, wine and food is about relationships and connections. So then when you can make that connection to a actual person or a place, uh, it, I think it enhances the experience. And that we do that with, with all these wines. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think that's so well said. Okay. Uh, especially because I understood what you were saying, which, you know, doesn't always, doesn't always happen, but uh, <laughs> sorry. No, but I think that's, that's, that's so true. And to, these are family run wineries. They are, it's, you know, even if it's not always hundred percent estate, it's still a family behind it. That's making that. And that's important too, you know, so Aberby Show started as a negociant. They're basically a negociant, someone that buys grapes from the big, or from growers. And uh, Louis Jadot and Boucherani and, and Jean-Claude Boisset all started Absolutely. with, uh, you know, doing this. And we love this concept, this idea of the grower-producer. Grower-producers are important. Yes, absolutely. These wines are. But the negociant allows small independent farmers who can't afford to make the wine, can't afford, don't have a place to ferment the wine, to bottle the wine, to label the wine, to package the wine, to sell the wine, to distribute it, that that's a huge undertaking. And, you know, that is what created that concept, that story, that, that reality created Domaine de la Bergere, created uh, Domaine Romanicante, it created these awesome Maison Champi, these great growers that produce wine. You know, Loire is one of the most famous wines. There, a friend of mine, I was at his wine shop the other day and had some of just the entry level red and white burgundy. And I'm like, oh, how much for those? And he's like, well, for you, I'll give you, he's from Ireland, he's like, for you, I'll give you a deal, hundred bucks. He's got kind of a raspy voice, you know? And that is a deal for those wines. I didn't buy them, but that's a deal for those wines. Um, and those are all negotiant wines. Those are, that's not a state fruit. That's purchased fruit from the law. Um, but they're they're beautiful, important important wines, you know. And um, when you have that story behind it, that's what makes to me Burgundy so magical and Oregon so magical. Because Oregon, there are some commodity brands out in Oregon, but the overwhelming majority of what we see in the market and and what you and I get to play with in terms of what we do are wines that have a story. There are wines like Alexana, there are wines like Christum, which those are great wines. Um, and, and really, I think, kind of like the wines of the Cote de Bonne, um, Resonance, those are great estates, um, biodynamically farmed, organically farmed, uh, really in tune to what's happening with Burgundy, you know, and those, Commodity brands are important because that's where many of us start. Yeah. You know, and like for you, it was hedonistic Pinot. For me, it was white Zin. And that's okay. It made sense. And, and I still like those wines. I go to someone's house and they have, you know, the name brand. And there's a reason why they sell as much as they do because they're just easy to drink and they're delicious. They're well made. Um, you know, it's funny because someone once said that I like geeky wines. And I was like, no, I, I like wines that are, you know, unique and kind of not natural wines, but wines that are made in a natural way. The mass produced wines, what they do, which is incredible, is they can produce a wine that is the same every single year. That's the geeky stuff. That's the science stuff. You know, to, to have a brand where you get a bad year, you get a good year, 
you don't have as much fruit or you got to get fruit from somewhere else from another part of the state that has nothing to do with the region you you normally get your fruit from but you can make it to taste the same that's incredible here the vintage is a vintage good or bad it's what you get it's what you get yeah. you know and that's also pretty special too yeah wine's awesome yeah Wine's awesome. If you, you, Manny and I like wine. Did any of you know that? Manny and I really like wine. And we watched sure. a lot of wine. You know, I, I, it's, it's, a, it's our thing, yeah. Um, and then hopefully, at least with Burgundy, we'll see. So for those of you that don't know, Burgundy had a, a terrible spring. Um, there are going to be some small vineyards that produce no fruit whatsoever. Um, the prices are going to be astronomically high on the high end and even the low end. You're going to be looking at wines you normally pay 15 bucks for, like a Macan Village, and you're going to pay 22. You know, get it while you can. <laughs> get it while it's hot. And then, you know, jump yourself into some uh, some wines from Oregon. You know, that's a good launching point, I think. When you, you know that Burgundy is too expensive, you know, you can start looking at some of these awesome Oregon wines as well. Yeah, don't go from Burgundy to White Claw. Don't do that. No. No. Or Burgundy to Oregon. I, I, I think that's a, we, that, that can be the theme of our podcast going forward. <laughs> do, don't go to White Claw. <laughs> drink White Claw if you want. Just don't drink it instead of wine. It's not why I can't buy my Burgundy anymore. I'm going to drink a White Claw instead. Um, <laughs> you know, don't do that. There's a time and place for that. That's like the, um, uh, not to offend anyone who is a, an avid beer drinker or uh, an avid soda fan but people that will go to a restaurant and say oh, i'll have this like i'll have bud light no i don't have that i'll just have a water really there's nothing else nothing else maybe a soda nothing or someone that's i only like pepsi i only like coke and i know the difference and the only time honestly i can tell the difference and i'm not embarrassed to say this is at mcdonald's because mcdonald's has a deal with coca-cola because they've had such a long time partnership that their sodas are sent in stainless steel containers and not in bags and so they're always going to be fresher at mcdonald's provided the fountain is not disgusting because if you've ever put your finger in one of those things they can be really gross um True. yeah and the the and there is gas to it that's fantastic that's all I got. <laughs> you know, it's like the, the, one time, the one time you're allowed to, you know, if you ask for that beer and they don't have it, get water, is if you ask for Miller High Life, because that is the pinnacle of all alcohol, whether it's wine, beer, or, um, or is, you know, or, or hot spirits. And is if that they don't have that, that's what you want, then yes, you're, you're allowed to go water. Aside from that, though, no. Is, is that, it's because the champagne of beers and you have a thing for champagne? No, but that's but that's that's a weird correlation. But you, you, you <laughs> that. that's not why. Look, sometimes, man, you just want a high life. All yeah, right? you know, like it's the um, I, I can't explain it. Uh, you know, it, I for whatever reason, if it's like really hot outside, you know, like I got I got three high life, Corona, and Amstel Light. I don't know why. 
I don't know why I, I can't explain it, but if it's like a hundred degrees out and, and I'm sweating, like give me one. And I am a, I am as happy as you can be. And it's, and and you, it's one of those I'm happier than if you handed me something else and I can't explain it. I don't know. And you gave me crap about ordering a Fernet and Pepsi in Argentina. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I will continue to do so. Unbelievable. <laughs> awesome. I, you know, I, I love when I was, um, I was telling that story to, uh, to the winemaker at Spy Valley um, when I was in New Zealand a few years ago. <laughs> four, four, four years ago. Four years ago, next month. Are you went to New Zealand? I had no idea. Yeah. And Australia. It's a lovely time. The things we learn on this podcast. <laughs> so what should we what should we do next? So I think we should just based on the fun that we I mean we've had two special guests, right? We had Shiro once, which was awesome. And we had Jean Charles. Uh, Don't give him so much credit. Uh Chiro is not that special. Well, you know. He's also sensitive though. So now yeah, I was yeah. trying not to hurt his feelings, but now you have. I'll make sure I put it's that. A, it's a good thing you won't listen and hear that. Because That's, uh, I'm going to put this in the promo and I'm going to tag him on it. <laughs> <laughs> but those those both went really well. They were a lot of fun. So I think we should do that uh, again for next time. I think we just have to drill down who we're going to do it with. I mean, there's a few people that we've talked to that might want to come on and, and chat. It's just schedules and whatnot. So I think we should say that it'll be a surprise special guest. I like that. Awesome. Just as long as it's not Yoko Ono. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I have a restraining order. It's a long story. Can't go into it. Yeah, it's, we all got one. <laughs> so I'll uh, I'll lead us out with a little bit of Nusrat Ali Khan and Must Must, which also you can make it a correlation because some wineries use grape must to produce their wines. Hmm. And uh, it's an aspect of winemaking is the must, so... And sometimes we just must have it. And we're always we're always connecting dots. Yeah. <laughs> this wine is really good. The Domaine de la Bergeret. It's like it's so easy to drink, and I, I know part of it's the vintage. But they, I mean, they were definitely going for to produce an easier style wine, like based based on how they press. Um, it actually does. If you're not planning to, to hold it, you should Corvin and try it next to the uh, Alexander. Maybe I'm just remembering Alexander wrong, but some of the fruit and this kind of like banana bread thing on the finish reminds me of Alexander. Okay. If I'm not, look, it's not going to be selling for too long. It's, it's going to be selling for a month. You know, drink, it's, not, it's not going to be sitting there for a I almost brought up during the, the cast that the, the Pinot clone, the primary Pinot clone, and this is a Pomade clone, but I don't want to talk clones because I feel like that's just a, that could go downhill very quickly. <laughs> you know, I was actually, I was thinking about that too, um, mentioning the Pomade being a Pomade clone. Um, oh, the things we should have said during the podcast. Yeah, well, it's more like... I got, into, I got into this with a buddy of mine, like, so what, what is a clone? I'm like, well, it's, a, it's, you know, it's a, 
like what I understand, it's, it's a cutting of a very specific strain of this vine from this area or whatever it is that you know you plant. You plant by cuttings, right? Like you don't you don't plant by seeds and blah blah blah. And they prom you know they promulgate these things in in nurseries and whatnot so that you can if you want the clone of blah 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 you can get it. Um, as opposed to uh, what is you know, it's not a hybrid of something or a um, what's the other term that everybody screws up? Mutation. Yeah, it's not you know it's you know it, it or like it like you know the Pomod clone is is a mutation of the original Pinot whatever the grape or something like that. Uh, but it's just being used over and over again. It's like, it's like, that stuff makes it's cool to talk about in a vacuum like it's we're just shoot the shit but i feel like we're gonna like someone's ears are gonna bleed and be like like what are they talking about it just doesn't uh, no. see if we were to do like like a pomard clone and a Dijon clone and a wendy clone we can um we can call the podcast the episode of attack of the clones <laughs> it's gonna be really cool we'll keep prevent you from listening one more week that's right <laughs> Even though he likes Star Wars. That's what he said. Must, must, must.